This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 39, recorded on August 15th, 2017. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we post the show, World Class Show, each week, and mostly World Class, because Christian does them, at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can send us an email. If you'd like to contact me, send me an email, Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track Christian down at Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. Either one of those work. And uh, we'd love to get your answers, your input, your questions, not answers, but your questions. Send us an email. If you want to track me on Twitter, at Jay Collison. And, of course, Christian is at Borg Whisperer. You still, you're still doing that, Christian? Still whispering Borgs, I guess, yeah. Still whispering on Borgs. Maybe we'll I, talk a little bit about a Borg today. Yeah, you know, I got out of the, like, the ever since Jim and I went competitive with uh, Twitter automation scripts, I just, uh, I don't I don't have the same heart for it like I used to, but... I'm, uh, I'm killing you. I just want you to find, know that. Find me Christian at the Average Guy TV if it's urgent. Twitter takes me a little longer to uh, wake up to, so... I got tough. Uh, now I have 10,400 followers on Twitter. Take that. Christian Johnson, human machine, and that's without without a script, without a cheater script, out a script. Getting he has that. gained three times the population that I built with a script in three weeks. It's awesome, <laughs> and it and just took long? me like three years. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. They're awesome. real people, actually. I think about a third of them are, uh, yeah. are fake. So Jim, Jim has authentic friends. I don't. So it's just it's a, all just good. a few. Just a few. Yeah, uh, a reminder that the average guy.tv powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high speed hosting for people that you know and you trust. And of course, you know, Christian, you can get information on plans that start as little as $10 a month, get you in, especially for podcasting and WordPress, maplegrovepartners.com. Well, you've heard from them already. Christian, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. And um, we did Honeypots a couple of weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. I feel like we could have done more there. Maybe we'll come back and revisit that. Um, since the time from that last recording, I went out to DEF CON a couple days after we did that show, a uh, really great conference this year. Honestly, it was a step up in terms of content from the last time I went. And I thought that a lot of the presenters had really concrete material this time. I think some of the talks can be not out of scope, but definitely more like hacker, make it, break it. And some of the talks that claim to be technical or deep dive, they sometimes fail to please. But this year was really, I think, pretty on point. There was a lot of great content that came out of it. Um, one of the shows we did a couple of weeks ago about um, server-side request forgeries, that presentation totally lived up to the hype that I made it out to be. Um, probably went down as one of my top three presentations. He had a great audience. And you know, a cool thing about DEF CON too that I guess I've never really mentioned on the show before is that um, the security conference that runs right before DEF CON, which is Black Hat, is essentially... 80% of the same content that you get at DEF CON for like 10 times the price tag, right? So you go to DEF CON, you're paying $260 cash at the door, no registration, et cetera. Black Hat, you're paying like, I think it's the last time I looked at it, I know it was like high 2800s. It may, it may be higher or lower than that now. I don't know, but you're paying thousands of dollars to get 80% of the same content, right? So uh, that's a really cool feature at DEF CON, I think. And so when we talk about the metrics of how popular this year was, 
they had another earth-shattering record of 25,000 conference attendees. To put that in perspective, last year was another uh, groundbreaker at 20,000, and that was their previous high. So they smashed their new their new high by 5,000 users. Um, it was at Caesars Palace this year, absolutely packed, uh, four tracks. But I mean, 25,000 hackers descending on a city, it continues to get crazy. Uh, one of the things you noticed this year that I don't remember happening last year is that the cell towers could not handle 25,000 hackers in Vegas. It just couldn't. The entire day, you could be outside, no no buildings obstructing your view, very strong signal, and internet pages just wouldn't load. Or if they did load, maybe it would be like three minutes later, you saw the Google News page pop up, right? So it, it was hilarious because once you started getting towards the end of the conference and people were flying out in the evenings and early in the morning, et cetera, all of a sudden it was like, wow, my cell phone works again. So everyone trying to stay off the Wi-Fi networks and use cell towers and so forth, um, really pretty funny. But it was the first year I noticed a major city like that couldn't handle an influx of 25,000 people all uh, stressing the infrastructure. So that was pretty cool too. Hey, um, do you think with that many people, the quality of the overall attender goes down a little bit? You know, as you start getting more and more people, it's, it starts to attract kind of the average guy. Not that that's bad, but do you, you, mm-hmm. you feel like it's starting to draw kind of some of that, you know, it used to be kind of a lead. Definitely, yeah, there definitely could be that stigma. I think one data point to support that is the fact that like more companies will send people to this, which really like if you compare DEF CON to almost any other like conference based um venue that a company would send you to this is like way out in left field in terms of like very different culture very different content um explored and explained vendors don't have the emphasis like other security conferences do so there's that element to it but i still think a lot of the core things that make defcon defcon seem to scale actually pretty well so like the defcon villages and the packet capture village where people are showing passwords and you know everything from people stupidly filling out tax return forms while at defcon and having those get showed up in the network i mean all sorts of really hilarious stuff happens so if anything I think some hackers are really excited that there are noobs coming to the conference because it's just more um, attack surface for them to have a little bit of fun. Um, but I think I think there is an element where it can degrade quality, especially when you talk about um, there's like some people go for the workshops, some go to network, some go for the villages, but a majority of the people I would say go for the talks. Like you want to go there and hear what the new latest and greatest, whatever that someone worked on or someone built or someone hacked together. And when you have 25,000 people spread across four tracks, like everyone has to go somewhere, right? So some will be at the villages, some will be, you know, taking a lunch break, et cetera. But at the end of the day, let's even say 5,000 of those people are not uh, there and 20,000 people are doing the talks, right? That means you have to fit 5,000 people per track, right? And this is an exaggeration. It's probably more around three to 4,000 per track. And these are for like the high volume ones, right? But we did these um, exercises in the room where people would have to kind of defragment the room and all shift over to the left as one presentation ended and the next one started to fit in all the huge waiting lists that there was outside to get into that track. So 
it can degrade it from the perspective of, you know, a lot of people getting crammed in. If you're sitting far behind, you're looking at a screen and then it's like, are you really getting the presenter and the in-person experience? Or are you getting like the after effect YouTube kind of experience? So I think that's one element for me that maybe concerns me a little. Um, but, you know, the way I addressed that is I got there, I got to the tracks I really wanted to see early and I got really good seating, right? So if you make it a priority that it's like, of all these things going on this weekend, these are my top three and you just focus on, getting in line early for it, getting a good spot, like you can make the most of the experience still. And honestly, even at the scale that it's at at this point, $260 for the level of content that's available, I think is a pretty solid deal. So I'm, I'm okay with that. What, uh, what do you think was the best of for you? Um, there were a couple of things that really kind of intrigued my interest. Uh, again, one was SSRF. I'll just keep mentioning it because I think it's so awesome. Uh, this guy really just splayed out how all sorts of different programming libraries, Python, Ruby, Java, Perl, Node.js, PHP, curl library, WGit, like things that developers take for granted as like gold standard. They all implement the RFC spec for how to parse a URL differently. So most people think that the URL is like maybe one, two, or at most three parts, but really a URL is five parts. And you know, you have your protocol, you have your host, you have your port, you have your um, your path or your context, and you have a, um, I think the last one they call either an anchor or there, there might be a different word for anchor, but it's essentially when you use the pound sign to be a breadcrumb on the web page, right? But there's five actual, oh, I have it right here. It's called a fragment. There we go. So your scheme is like HTTP or HTTPS. The authority is the host and the port name you're connecting to. The path is like the URL that makes up the web page. The query is like any query parameters that are related to the URL. So like uh, and user equals Jim Collison, right? That's, and then the pound would- a question mark usually? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where all your get URLs are and that makes up your query string. And then last is called a fragment. And that's just like where you basically say, I want to jump to a particular part of the page. And sometimes JavaScript uses fragments in a certain way, but essentially like there's there's five parts of this URL, right? And because of the way the RFC is written, each of these programming languages wrote the implementation of those five components slightly differently. So the order of operations in which the URL gets processed is different in many of the programming libraries. And you can take advantage of those processing. They're not glitches really, but you can take advantage of the order of operations in which certain libraries process the URL to basically make a really long, crazy URL that you know isn't right, know isn't going to resolve, but properly gets resolved by this to the point where you can bypass checking for valid host names. You might be able to convince a site to take you somewhere that you're not supposed to be. But more importantly, this is used to expose internal services in the network. So say I find one of these URLs that I know I can manipulate and I know the backend web server is going to interpret it in a certain way that I can leverage. I can maybe fool that server 
into serving up 127.0.0.1 instead of the actual website it's supposed to be running. I might be able to fool it into serving up a internal corporate web page instead of whatever external website it's providing to users, right? So it's really amazing how, um, you know, like if we think about a lot of security, a lot of security focus when we talk about web-based security, especially is around input sanitization, variable sanitization, like doing smart developer things, right? Most people would think that the URL is one of the most scrutinized um, variables to be parsed, sanitized, et cetera, et cetera, and the actual like construction of the URL. I'm not talking about a developer that makes a dumb mistake with a Git parameter. I'm talking about a library actually reading in a URL and making sense of what the URL is supposed to be doing from where I'm supposed to go and get content, right? You would think that is one of the like gold standards, right? And this guy basically blew it wide open and showed all the ways in which it's not. Um, and I mean, some of the stuff he could do is really just brilliant. And so this gentleman, um, one, one of the recent, um, I think it was the third annual GitLab bug bounty that he won. And it sounds cutesy when I'm talking about it, but some of the stuff that you can do with this is crazy. I mean, we're talking about protocol smuggling, um, to the point where he was able to successfully do um, remote code execution and win the top prize for GitLab by doing something as quote unquote simple as URL manipulation, right? So the fact that something like that leads to remote code execution is something that I think very few people would ever kind of get in their head, right? So it was specifically for GitLab Enterprise, right? So if you go to github.com, that's like the commercial GitHub. Um, GitHub Enterprise is essentially when you want to run your own GitHub in your company or your, your whatever, right? And GitHub Enterprise is written on Ruby on Rails platform. Ruby is one of the languages I told you about that has its own implementation for how to read in those uh, URL parameters. And he basically chained four different vulnerabilities together using protocol smuggling and SSRF to get a remote code execution. And that's just like the level of brilliance that takes to hack around that is like truly remarkable. And I think this was probably one of the most enjoyed talks for me, if not for most of the people there, like really well done. And uh, I got one of the front seats on this one. So it was pretty exciting. Cool. Did you go with the boys? Did, the, did, did they show up this time? Yeah. Yeah, so the whole clan um, did come this time as well. So we, uh, you know, we've all kind of moved out our separate ways since being done at uh, College Park, but we're still able to get together and all kind of fly out and meet up for the conference. So that was pretty awesome. And uh, I think they enjoyed it as much as I did. It's kind of become a uh, cultural right for us to go out and do that. So uh, yeah. it was a good time. That's good. I think that's probably a trip you'll do, I don't know, another six or seven times and then things will start getting in the way and families something and, like that uh, those kinds something of like things, that. <laughs> those Whoa, things. anything else that. yeah don't don't think about it too long anything else uh christian um eventually i want to do some more um probably in-depth on some of the particular talks this was just kind of a little bit of a summary of what actually happened so that i didn't i didn't leave listeners wondering how that went uh Short answer TLDR is it went awesome as expected. Uh, one of the interesting news outtakes that probably uh, everyone will ask me now is around um, the big star at DEF CON um, who, 
He's a British cybersecurity researcher. His name is Marcus Hutchins. He is the guy that everyone thought was... The, the, everyone had to talk to this guy when he was at DEF CON because he was the guy who figured out the kill switch in the WannaCry ransomware by registering the domain name that he predicted based on analyzing the code, right, would would shut down the ransomware globally. And so he was kind of hailed as this cybersecurity hero and this genius and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He got through the DEF CON conference and a couple of days later found himself in prison um, and there have been formal charges filed um, that he was the inventor of a pretty nasty um, malware called Kronos, which exfiltrated banking data, passwords, credentials, et cetera, back in like 2014, right? So um, today or a couple of days ago, he pled not guilty to that. Um, it could very well be that one of the pivotal things about this case very quickly is going to become did the FBI or did the forensic team that decided this guy was the author, did they get it right or did they get it wrong? Like usually these guys don't get it wrong, right? But Marcus apparently has set up black holes and all sorts of other things throughout the internet to study this malware very intimately and study other types of malware. I mean, he's a security researcher, right? So these would be the things we would expect really like hardcore security researchers to be doing, especially if they're a guy that stopped ransomware, right? And essentially, the open question is, if someone is doing that much to analyze it, can they forensically look like they're the author, right? So I think that's going to be a pivotal thing in this case. I don't think there's enough data out there right now to know one way or another who's right. Um, like I said previously, usually, usually when the cyber team at FBI or, or federal government investigation um, comes in to pick someone up for this, they very rarely get it wrong. Um, but if I had to say a Hail Mary pass for someone they might've gotten it wrong on, this person could potentially be it, right? Like this guy's all over the security community, clearly has a lot of chops in what he's doing. It's very well possible it could be perceived that he um, was involved when he wasn't. But at the end of the day, whatever comes forth in, in the court proceedings, I think will be really interesting uh, to see how the decision was arrived at and um, how solid the evidence is against or, or not against him. I know this is going to sound a little hokey, but could it be a jealous rival who, you know, is trying to discredit and, you know, that does happen. Where people I mean, yeah, but it's like, I, I don't know when you, when you get people at this level dealing with security stuff, um, trying to misattribute who's responsible is a pretty in-depth operation. I, yeah. I wouldn't, I just I, I, you, you see a guy like this, and you, it's yeah. hard to believe he gets. He's got a cute face, like right? <laughs> like that's the thing. He's got a really cute face. So either like he's a really nice guy who just got in the wrong line of fire, or he's like one of those people that looks great on the surface, and then underneath is stealing your bank account money, right? So we just don't know. Yeah, well, so, it's just you know, you kind of it was a shock to a lot of people. We we had Veronica Belmont on. Uh, home gadget geeks and she had interviewed him uh, right after this on her show IRL in real life. And he, so she's got him, she like got the scoop on him was interviewing him. And then next week he was busted. Uh, and yeah. so she, she had to kind of come on the show this week and say, well, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty, but this is what happened after, after the interview we did. Um, yeah. So, you know, I just, you, you kind of wonder, 
you know, sometimes I kind of wonder if it was a setup of some kind where somebody had something against him. You know, I, I also think you can't live in that world without burning somebody. And so, you I mean, think about what he did to shut that thing off. And then maybe somebody comes, you know, somebody makes a call and, and all of a sudden it shows up with his signature in it, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, the fact that this happened like three, like the, the malware was right. launched three years ago and only now we're getting around to making um, forensic accusations one way or another. Like that's crazy to See, me. That's my like, point. I'm sorry, but it doesn't crazy. smell right. You know, it, it doesn't just, smell right, but I, I, I don't know. So, some of these things also can take like a substantially long time to build a picture. Like it might not, the data or the footprint to follow might not be immediately available. Right. So hard to say, right. Yeah. Well, interesting timing. Very interesting. Um, but again, if this is someone you're going to pick up who's overseas and he comes to the United States and you're basically waiting for an opportunity so that you don't have to do a um, extradition request or however that's handled, right? Like there could have been there could have been that element too, right? Um, but yeah, no, no idea, honestly. And also, I'm not sure if the indictment specified whether or not they were saying he committed the crimes when he was in the U.S. or if he committed the crimes abroad. So another data point I'm a bit fuzzy on, right? Well, how long do you think this will play out in court? I mean, it's I, you're not um, you're not a legal expert and we're not asking you to be one. But wh what do you think if you were to guess, is this going to be years before we really see anything of this? Years I don't know about. I know that the initial case details were being um, deliberated in Wisconsin. I also know he was granted bail um, pretty quickly and is essentially on bail. He has to wear a GPS monitor, but other than that, he's um, been given permission to stay in Los Angeles near his legal team, um, and he can travel anywhere in the U.S. He just can't leave the country he was then re-given access to use the internet. So like he's pretty much, I, they've evaluated him clearly as not being much of a flight risk. Um, it's clear that there's a legal team in place here. I think at the very minimum, we're talking six months before we start to see any anything presented in a court and potentially up to a minimum of a year to resolve this case one year or another. Because I think the evidence they're going to have to present to um illustrate one count of conspiracy to commit computer fraud and abuse, three counts of distributing and advertising an electronic communication interception device, and one count of endeavoring to intercept electronic communications, and one count of attempting to access a computer without authorization. Like that's six charges that you have to lay out to an audience that may not be technical at all, right? Like if they have to pick the jury, um, I, I don't know if the jury selection is going to be, let's find people that we agree on who have IT experience to look at this, or if it's going to be like, you have to boil it down to the least common denominator so that the average Joe can look at this case without a computer forensic background and be able to make heads or tails of it. Right. Um, and based on how that jury is selected could very well determine aspects of the outcome of this case as well. Yeah. The, the part that really sucks is he can't have a computer that's connected to the internet. You know, well, I guess he couldn't, but I think now he can or oh, something okay. like that. Right. Initially, yeah. he was banned, but because yeah. he basically said, hello, this is my work, this is my life, innocent until proven guilty, they uh, decided to let him uh, use the internet. So, yeah. 
Um, I guess an earlier judge had barred him from using any device with access to the internet, but the later judge was uh, overturned that. So, yeah. Well, I can imagine it could be months before we see anything trial wise, and that could go on for a while. He's stuck here in the United States. That suck a lot. So it'll be interesting to follow. That'll be something to to kind of see. This may be one of those really, really interesting, very first high profile cyber, you know, cybersecurity um, cases that we just don't hear about many of them. I don't know. I, can, can you think of any? I can't really name any that would be. I'm sure there's some small ones, but I can't name any that's high profile. Do you think this fits into the category of high profile? I would say high profile only because the security uh, the security community is so like blatantly aware of this, and it seems to have leaked into like non security uh, conscious communities in terms of what's going on here. Uh, I think one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of high profile cases like this is because so many of the major cyber crimes committed against the United States in terms of intellectual property loss, theft, banking, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is happening at a global scale, right? Behind firewalls, behind a lot of random stuff. It's it's not very often that you can um, get a federal government to say they have enough evidence to even try and bring charges against someone, right? So a lot of times maybe the, the perpetrator is out of the country. We don't have any means to extradite them or to charge them. Maybe we have the evidence, but we don't have the means. Or maybe we have the means, but we don't have the evidence. So this is one of those rare ones where it's high profile because this guy is working with some of the really high buzz um, software that's been an issue, right, globally, um, and also seems to have enough of a backing in terms of initial discovery to go forth with a case, which I think um, is is not too common, to be quite honest. Yeah. Well, and that's it. I mean, ransomware has shown up in the consciousness of at least Americans. And it's it's we're, we're all, you know, I think maybe two years ago, no one even knew what it was. And I think today everybody's pretty familiar with it. So it's this converging of all these different things in a perfect storm. And how ironic that it happens at DEF CON. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, God, a good movie could be made out of this. You know? it's, it's pretty funny. Um, yeah. 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 Not funny for him. Right. Absolutely. But that's I mean, for sure. But, but I, I guess uh, ironic is the yeah, word I'm looking for. Yeah. 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 No, that's a, that's a good term. Well, we'll, it'll be months. I think this will be one of those kinds of things that disappears for a while. And then um, shows back up as it goes to trial, and or you know at some point like it could get, still get thrown out if they can't get enough evidence or if they can't if it doesn't look like they can prosecute. Although they probably wouldn't have made an arrest if they didn't think they could prosecute. So they, they we we probably will see something. Yeah, yeah, you know? uh, they got something. So. We'll have to get our legal correspondent Mike Weger on the uh, yes. on, on the prowl. Indeed, <laughs> legal wizard and Bitcoin miner. Bring bring in Uyghur. We've had a lot of problems with that. What else, Christian? What else you want to talk about? Yeah. So um, one of the other offshoots from DefCon that always continues to fascinate me is um, Internet of Things, device security, and how we talked so much about how insecure these things are. And um, one of the talks talked about 
like they took device after device after device, like things you and I are buying off the shelf all the time. They tear them down, they get root access to them, they get into the breadboard, they bypass all the things to get root access. And then like, obviously we have a, we have a phrase in, in the security community that's basically, you know, physical access is the bane of all existence. Meaning if you got physical access, like that's the most privileged state you're ever going to have and to gain uh, full access to a system, right? So it's cool that you can do it, but it doesn't really matter unless the outcome is finding a uh, remote code execution, right? So they basically break into these firmwares with their own devices. And it's like the equivalent of jail routing in a sense, right? Just so that you can study how the device is built, how the device does its data or does its model to the user so that you can see, hey, are there any obvious vulnerabilities here that could lead to remote code execution, authentication bypass, et cetera, et cetera, right? And like just one of the, I, I laugh at just how amazing the level of um, driving trucks through some of these devices are. I mean, one of the really popular Western digital ready NAS devices had 14 remote authentication bypasses and like 30 security holes. And like, this is one firmware, right? So uh, kind of crazy. Um, we see a lot of devices like that. And so that was, that was cool for me. Um, a tangent that has nothing to do with this that I want to pivot to just because I've been having a lot of fun with it lately. And I figure we can talk about something non-security or data related once in a blue moon. I won't do it often. Um, but I got a hold of one of these um, 2009 um, 2008, 2009, uh, white MacBooks, And these are really cool because this is when Apple was in the awkward turtle phase of some of this hardware. It was, you know, several years after Apple went to Intel based, um, CPUs on their laptops. So it's a, it's an Intel based chipset. It's also one of the first, um, hardware platforms that was 64 bit. So, this particular edition of the white MacBook had a Core 2 Duo processor in it, and I, I retrofitted it to have four gigabytes of memory, right? But it was one of the first 64-bit um, compatible MacBook architectures. And so when I got a hold of this thing and got ownership of it, it had Mac OS X 6 or 10.6.8, which I think is uh, Snow Leopard, I want to say. And that's a pretty dated OS, right? We're talking dated to the point where they still actually included Microsoft Internet Explorer in the operating system image of Mac OS X, right? So the latest you could upgrade this bad boy was to um, 10.7.5. That was the last OS that Apple supported on this version of the hardware. Um, it was a $20 upgrade, so I didn't do it because I didn't want to do it. Um, and the latest version of Mac today is like 10.12. I think it's either Sierra. I think it's called Sierra. Uh, I think the one before it was El Capitan. Heck if I know their names are kind of bizarre to me. Um, but so I want to do something cool with this because honestly, a laptop that has four gigabytes of Ram and a dual core CPU that's 64 bit compatible is surprisingly more useful than people think. Um, if you look at the Wi-Fi chips on these, they were wireless N it supported 5g it, you know, MacBook that actually has an audio jack in it, what a thought, seeming as how their iPhones don't anymore, has a LAN interface, has a Firewire. Uh, this was before the era of Thunderbolt, so even more retro from that perspective. Uh, but otherwise, you know, full DVD player, pretty modern laptop, kind of like the latest tech you would see before DDR3 era as a laptop. So 
I wanted to do something cool because I figured why not breathe a little bit of life back into this thing? It had pretty good battery. It's a, and it could be a great thing to, you know, have a terminal shell up, have a web browser up, do some email, whatever. So what I wanted to do is install the latest version of Ubuntu on it. And, um, Ubuntu keeps their stuff all up to date. It would put a modern operating system on this. It would be secure. I could, you know, install and use whatever utilities I want. And one of the things I wanted was a 64-bit version of the operating system for Ubuntu 17.04, which is their latest desktop release, right? And it was really challenging to get that on here. And one of the things, okay, number one, anything that's a Mac is a little bit convoluted to try and make not a Mac. I think that's one of the hallmark characteristics of Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs was rolling in his grave while I was doing this project and Linus Torvalds uh, was jumping up and down with joy. Um, yet another Mac converted to the, to the mother uh, operating system. But um, Interestingly enough, this firmware, so the Mac boot firmware is like very unique, right? It's not the traditional BIOS that you see on a Windows desktop. It's actually, Mac is one of the longest running devices that used EFI long before Windows got into UEFI and Secure Boot and all that good stuff. So Mac has their own EFI on here, and essentially it is very, very hard to boot anything with a USB stick that is not formatted as EFI, is not forwarded as a, uh, formatted as a Mac HFS partition, et cetera, et cetera. Even after I got past doing all of those things, um, nothing booted, nothing detected, et cetera. So one of the first things I did was I burned a new EFI firmware on here called uh, Refit, Re-EFI-T. And that basically was like a little bit more sophisticated EFI, it extended it so that you could try and boot other types of devices, um, but it really did not help me at all. And so one of the problems that I kept having was that it refused to boot the 64-bit installation USB or even see the device as bootable. So one step was getting it to look bootable, which I was able to eventually do by getting refit on here and playing around with a lot of different um, partition stuff. Eventually, when I got past that hurdle, though, it would try and boot the device and it would fail because it would say that it couldn't boot a 64-bit EFI. And like, this is really bizarre because this is one of the few devices that is a 64-bit architecture, but has a 32-bit EFI on the uh, bootloader. So essentially your computer is being booted up by software written in 32-bit. And so it can only understand 32-bit based EFI pass-offs. And so... The challenge is, how do you boot a 64-bit operating system installer on a 32-bit EFI platform? Um, and so I spent several hours with this and eventually was able to modify the Ubuntu installer CD to use a 32-bit EFI launcher to launch a 64-bit operating system installer um, and was able to get the latest, greatest um, Ubuntu 17.04 on this thing. And then I went a step further and decided I'm really going to make Steve Jobs roll in his grave by skinning it to look exactly like a Mac operating system. So it's totally badass. It was one of my fun hack projects uh, over the weekend. It gets several hours of battery life, does all the cool Linux things that you would want, looks like a MacBook, talks like a MacBook, thinks maybe like a MacBook. 
Um, and it just, it rolls. So I figured, you know, this is one of the, in the spirit of DEF CON, which sometimes has nothing to do with cybersecurity because they're really looking to just uh, show you that they can hack and take things apart and put it back together or make things reuseful. Uh, this is kind of one of those examples, breathing life into uh, older hardware and doing some cool stuff with it. So honestly, I, I might actually name this laptop the Hacktop because it's got all the Linux tools on it. It looks like something it's not. Um, you could easily put a lot of penetration testing or other security tools on here to analyze networks or do other stuff with it. So it's a great laptop for doing that type of stuff. And uh, I thought it was pretty awesome that... Um, I could even get this far with this type of infrastructure. I mean, this laptop was given to me um, at a point where it wasn't booting up. So um, it took a while to figure out that it actually had a faulty RAM chip. It looked like maybe the screen was bad because it um, the screen would like make a pop and then it just nothing. And apparently that was indicative of a bad RAM chip. So that's what made me go and put four gigs of old DDR2 RAM I had lying around and resurrected. And lo and behold, um, it looks a lot like a Mac operating system and login screen that you would see. Did you use uh, a skin for that or did you just do it kind of Yeah, freestyle? so this this is a Unity skin. Um, so Ubuntu has a, a graphics engine called Unity. And so you can actually override the default um kind of operating system skin with your own custom themes. So there is this website called Macbuntu that wrote and developed all the skins and icons to look exactly like Mac. Um, so it's, it's loading up here, but you can see just that login screen looked kind of exactly like uh, what a Mac would. And so uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, I... I don't have the the Mac taskbar, some of the other things running right now, but I mean, you can see the common desktop bar. You can see the... Um, the Mac um, launch bar at the top. The launch bar I have on the left is clearly the Ubuntu one, but I have a, um, a Mac version that I was running earlier. I've just been playing around with it for a bit. Um, runs latest versions of Firefox, all that stuff, great. You can re-simulate the Spotlight tool on here that Mac has to do search. You can, um, you can simulate the launch pad. So I pretty much have the whole thing looking and smelling exactly like a MacBook um, without having to figure out how to make a later version of Mac work on here, which clearly wouldn't happen. So and you're not, that's not going to run slow on you. It's a dual, dual uh, core. You said dual core, right? Yeah. Dual core, four gigs of RAM. Honestly, the limitation is the speed of this hard drive. It's a slower spinner drive. If I were to put an SSD in here, it would be like lightning fast. Um, so Ubuntu can run off. I mean, Ubuntu doesn't need anything um, overwhelming to be a, a well-performing operating system. Right. So it um, really, yeah, if you're trying to do like intense computations or something like that, yeah, it's going to suck. But for running a web browser or an email or having a couple terminals open or watching a YouTube video, like it, it'll work just fine. Yeah, I put Ubuntu on the Kangaroo, you know, two gig of RAM, really crappy mobile processor in there. It struggles a little bit. Yeah, uh, it'll it'll heat that thing up pretty well. Um, I, I tried to put PFSense. Uh, I had similar issues. Funny that we're talking about this. The EFI loader is super strong on this Kangaroo PC, and I had no trouble getting it from Windows to Ubuntu, mm -hmm. uh, and that worked out great, but getting it back to Windows was a little bit of a challenge. And then when I tried to do PFSense, you know, you I think I downloaded Rufus, Rufus 
and use that to make, you know, I download the PFSense image, then use Rufus to burn it on the, I could yep. not, I could not yep. get it to recognize that drive that as an EFI, you know, it, keeps, right. it just kept finding windows. Yep. Yep. Rufus is pretty popular for doing the EFI burns for windows. I used a tool called etcher.io to get the EFI burn for the Ubuntu um, installation, but it was really tricky because uh, even once I was able to quote unquote boot the 32 bit EFI version of this OS that I had installer that I had made, all it did was drop me into a grub shell and then I had to manually figure out which partition to load. I had to find where the Linux kernel was. I had to find where the the VM Linux and the IntraFS file system expansion was. I had to read the Grub configuration file that was intended to be loaded so that I could like get the uh, Ubuntu installer to come up. So it was pretty challenging from that perspective. Um, there are some guides out there that will eventually get you to a point where you can dual boot Linux and Mac. I had no interest in keeping the crusty operating system of old on there. So I just blew it away and it boots straight into Ubuntu. And um, yeah, like surprisingly challenging, uh, especially those devices were in an awkward growing phase because it was really when like UFI and EFI started becoming popular, but it was just being transitioned. So these types of laptops in this era of hardware and operating systems, like it was in that awkward transition state where some stuff worked and some stuff didn't. And you just kind of had to know that inside secret to get it to work. Um, so it was, it was fun playing with a device like that because there's all sorts of weird things you don't expect to be roadblockers that turn out to be painful roadblockers, but, um, it was a good learning experiment. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, no, the, it's, it is fun. Is there anything when we think of Ubuntu? So you got that on there. I, this is where I always go. Like I, you know, every six months I install a copy somewhere and I mess with it for like a day. And then I'm like, yeah. Neh. You know what? Besides development, it's for the average guy. Is there really any use besides? I mean, to make it your daily driver, to use it for email, yeah. right? All those things. Are there any good uses for it besides this? Your your typical. I have computing stuff. I have the same problem answering that question with any operating system now. Like I'm becoming so operating system agnostic that I like if you ask me that question for Mac or Windows, my answer looks something like this: for Mac. Great graphics processing, great ability to do like video editing, rendering, artsy kind of stuff, image processing, um, Photoshop, etc. Um, Mac excels in that user experience. Outside of that, what can I do on a Mac that I can't do on Linux? I'm not sure. Um, then when we talk about Windows, like what's the big thing about Windows? Well, it's the gaming operating system. They have the most supported games, the biggest gamer communities. They have Steam. They have all these different, you know, game platforms. So like Windows on the consumer side probably won't go away just because it has really great DirectX engines and the ability to do um, computer gaming. But after those two distinguishments, like I... Tell me, Jim, I, I honestly don't know. What are what are the things that trip your trigger for Windows or Mac that you can't do in Linux? Yeah, well, I certainly, certainly from a podcasting standpoint, it's all just set up to run the camera, to, you know, to handle the, the Adobe stuff that I do. I could, I, theoretically, I, can, I bet I could make it all work. It would be a little bit of a learning curve to get there. You know, I don't know if there's C920 drivers. I'm sure there are, but... Does the same software come with it that allows me to manipulate the the color, so to speak? That's important. 
Um, you know, I know I could run Audacity. So I probably, if I wanted to, I could probably switch everything over. It's just a, such a learning curve to get it done that you kind of start thinking, do I really want to spend that time? So it's never made sense to, to your point, I think. It's never made sense to me to have another operating system just running because it's a it's a whole other learning curve. And right. and so I've like I said, I've put Ubuntu on several um, PCs over the last, you know, five or six or seven years. I just can't bring myself to learn it, you know, and it's not that hard. I get it. It's not that hard. But I, when you're in the Windows environment or when you're in the Mac environment, you really want to learn another system. And I, so I end up, it's on there for two weeks and I wipe it out and put something else on there because it's just more fun to, you know, have an insider build that they're changing all the time. And that's useful at this point, you know, something like that. Yeah, no, uh, right on. And I think... It's for me, I almost see the operating system like the tool at this point. So what's the right tool for the right job, right? So in some cases, Linux like easier to develop certain things on, right? So for me as like a as a software engineer, I need to have that type of operating system flexibility, I think, at this point um, in, in the work that I do. Um, outside of that, I guess consider the security of the platforms that you're on, right? Like the the security model of Windows 10 is very different from Mac, is very different from Linux. So consider the advantages or disadvantages that you might get on each platform from a security perspective. I think most of your average consumer is not going to care about that, to be completely honest, but it's something I care about. So that must count for something. Um, And, you know, All these operating systems, though, can do the same core business functions that people care about. Your cell phone can do the same core. Like your cell phone, Jim, uh, actually, are you on iPhone now? Yeah, iPhone 6. Yeah, you're on iPhone now. But like for 60% of the user community that uses Android, guess what? You're on a Linux operating system. I like don't know how else to break it to you, but you're using Linux every day and you don't realize it, right? So uh, I think... I think when you put it in that perspective, like, holy cow, my smartphone is a Linux operating system, you can see how it can be made to be really, really user-friendly, right? So from that perspective, I think the whole, the arguments from five to 10 years ago about user-friendliness and usability, I think are pretty much vanquished at this point in my view. Um, We have made really dumb versions of Linux that work just as beautifully fat and happy as Mac OS X or Windows um, to the point where it's in like 50 to 60% of people's pockets every day. So, yeah, well, um, and I put it on a PC and it does everything. There's, I guess there's no tinkering, which is, you know, it used to be, well, you have to make this work or that work and you go to the store and you download what you need and you get the office versions. And for the most part you get done and it's like setting up a windows PC. You're like, okay, now I have to use it. Right. But, Most of these operating systems, like I remember like installing Windows XP and spending days trying to find the right drivers and the right software. And it's like, that's just not really any customer experience anymore. No matter what operating system you're on, Linux automatically finds all the drivers and runs. Mac does the same because they're selective about their hardware. Windows, the Windows update library is so ginormous now. It has almost every device under the sun already in Windows update. So when you're at that point of usability, like the things we used to fret about from a usability standpoint just really aren't a concern anymore. So having operating system diversity for the average guy, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I I think there are certain operating systems for certain tasks that just get it done better than the other one. But um, Well, and that I have that same thought and I go, uh, well, I'll put Ubuntu on this thing 
And then it sits yeah. there for a couple of weeks. And I'm like, this is really dumb. Like, what am I doing with this thing? I could be surfing. And, and some of it is I always end up putting it on a really crappy hardware. And it so it struggles. And then I say, well, this is crappy. Well, it'd probably be better if I put it on better hardware, you know? Right. So. Right. All right. What else? Anything else you want to cover in our time? Did we get no, I think that's a, that's a wrap for this week. Uh, it's <laughs> a little bit of a shorter show. We've uh, kind of deviated off path for a bit, but we're going to try and get some meaty content back in. It's been a quiet couple of weeks in terms of the security news for the most part, besides the points that we've covered. Um, but I, I need to get back into creating some new original content, so to speak, that's not news driven so that we can do some learning yeah. um, and potentially update our byline to say, I'm no longer a student at the university of Maryland. I think <laughs> we, we should that. probably, I think you have access to the site. You could probably go in there. Yeah. Right? It sounds <laughs> like a grep find all operation. So have to get in there and update your about uh, page. Yep. Well, I'll be off. This is good timing. I am uh, in Los Angeles next week at podcast movement. So excited to get kind of out of Omaha for the week, see my son, down there in San Diego, we'll be in LA uh, for most of the week uh, next week, and no podcasts, no home gadget geeks next week. Just taking the week off, and uh, so we'll Christian will schedule something for the Tuesday after. I think, yeah, that's that's still we got a holiday coming up here too, and you and I are going to get together coming up on the holiday. So excited about that! It'll be great to great to see you and hang out with you on Labor Day. Yeah, very cool. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, with that, I'll remind everyone that, of course, the TheAverageGuy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners, secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. I say that all the time. And uh, if you're high interested, high-speed hosting, some some super fast stuff. We have the need for speed. Optimized for podcasters, but anybody who's looking for a site as uh, inexpensive as $10 a month, we'll get you there. Uh, for more information, visit maplegrovepartners.com, all one word. And, uh, of course, we would love to hear your questions, your comments, your contributions, your suggestions. If you got a topic you want Christian to cover, God knows I can't do it. Send us an email, jim at TV. You can send it directly to Christian if you want, Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. Uh, don't forget, find me on Twitter at Jay Collison and Christian at Borg Whisperer. I had to look that up again this week, Christian, as I was trying to track you down. But uh, I got it indeed. If you enjoyed this program, we ask that you share it. We'll thank those guys, Mike, Tony, Quazy, or a few more out there, Loftos out there earlier, who came out and joined us live. And we do these on Tuesday nights, about 8 p.m. Central. Don't hold us to it. Just kind of whenever we get to it. And so about every other Tuesday night, if you want to join us, watch me on Twitter. With that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Good night.